0: Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for this morning. And as we just saw Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. We're glad that you are resident within each one of us who are believers. And it's by your help that we can understand uh, you. We can know you. We can understand your word to us as revealed in your scripture so that we can know you. Uh, so that we can understand you, we can know your heart, we can understand your character, your attitude. And I pray this morning, uh, Spirit, that you would help us. You tell us in First Corinthians that without your help, Uh, scriptures make no sense to us you make no sense to us but with your help you illuminate our minds and our hearts in Christ Jesus so that we can know our blessed Savior our our great Redeemer Jesus Christ and then live in honor of him and live for him and follow after him with integrity and with a fullness of heart and so I pray you would help us this morning in Jesus name amen you may be seated Take your Bible and turn with me to Ephesians 1. I'm going to read for us verses 15 down to 23 this morning. Ephesians 1, starting in verse 15 down to 23. Paul here, after he's finished now this long explanation of what the Godhead has done for us in salvation. He goes into this second part of his prayer and he writes these words. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the excuse me according to the working of his great might All in all. I'm really excited to be returning this morning to our study in this beautiful book of Ephesians. And as I might have mentioned to you before, basically the entire first chapter is a prayer. After a a brief introduction from verses 3 down to 14, Paul prays this prayer of blessing back to God, and then when you hear verses 15 and through the end of the chapter, verse 23, Paul is praying kind of the second prayer, this time a prayer for the recipients of his letter, primarily the Ephesian believers, and then of course to us uh, as having that word handed down to us. If you'd like to geek out a little bit on the original languages, Uh, you know that I told you verses 3 to 14 is one long sentence in the original Greek. The same thing is true of verses 15 to 23. Now, in the English translation that I read for you, there is one period in there in the start of a second sentence, but in the original language, it's one long sentence. It's almost like when Paul gets started on something, he just doesn't know where to stop. It just kind of keeps going and going and going, right? It just keeps pouring out of him. So we're going to break down uh, this second Part of the prayer into two different sections but it is one uh, in the original language now we've said up to now in this study in our book that ephesians is laid out in two parts chapters one through three describe our position in christ Chapters four, five, and six then describe how to live out that position in Christ. So four, five, and six, we would say are the more practical application parts. Chapters one, two, and three are we what we call the indicatives, or they're more of the the abstract truth about our position. And then chapters four, five, and six, the imperatives, how how to live that out, how to put that into practice. Here's here's the awesome reality of the book of Ephesians and the truth that it's proclaiming. When you and I are called by God and we express belief in God, we express belief in the redemptive work of Jesus Christ on the cross, God takes all of the righteousness of Jesus Christ and he credits it to our account. In the eyes of God, if you are a believer... You are as righteous as Jesus. You are as perfect as Jesus. You are as blameless as Jesus. Why? Well, it's because when God looks at you as his adopted child, he looks at you through the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood of Jesus has been applied to you. You've been washed in the blood. We sing that. You've been redeemed. You've been made clean. You are a new creation in the person of Jesus Christ. God cannot love you any more or any less than he loves you right now because his love for his son never changes and you are in his son, okay? He can't love you any more or any less than what he loves you right now because you are in Jesus Christ. Now, that's kind of hard For me, I don't know about you, but it's kind of hard to wrap our minds around because when we look at our lives, we don't look at our lives as perfect and holy and blameless because they're not in a lot of ways, right? We look at our lives and we say, well, if I'm perfect and holy and blameless, there's a problem here. Right? Uh, we, we have an issue, and so often what you and I will do uh, is resort to some works-based mentality. If I just do this, that will make God happier with me. Or if I just quit doing this, maybe God will be less angry with me. And we turn to almost this scales kind of mentality in our minds and we we say if i just drop more good works on this side of the scales then then it will take me up to a happier god for me or if i just take off these bad works it'll lift me up to a happier god and you and i end up going through this roller coaster mentality God's really happy with me today because I succeeded in in doing this or God's really angry with me today because because I did this thing that displeased him and we we wrestle with this he loves me, he loves me not kind of mentality. Paul wants us to get past that kind of thinking and looking at the reality of the matter and so in the first three chapters of Ephesians he says, "No, no, look, this is what God has done for you. This is what he has made you. And he kind of hints at it in verse 4 of chapter 1. He says, God chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be what? Holy and blameless. That's what he chose us for, to be holy and blameless. And then when you get to chapter 4 in verse 1, he says, Therefore, I, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk... in the the worthy of the calling to which you've been called. You've been called to be holy and blameless. God sees you as holy and blameless. That's your position. Now in chapters 4, 5, and 6, walk it out. Do it. Actually put into practice what you are in position. Actually begin doing what God has called you to do. Begin walking in holiness and blameworthiness. And this is what it looks like, he says. Chapters 4, 5, and 6, and oh, by the way, you have the indwelling spirit to help you accomplish that. Okay, so that's Paul's pattern as he writes. He tells you who you are in Christ, and then he tells you how to live that out. If you reverse those two, if you go to chapters 4, 5, and 6 and say, if you just do this, then you will be chapters 1, 2, and 3. That will lead to a life either of legalism, self righteousness, or a faith that's lived out in fear. I never know for sure if I've quite done enough. If you keep them in the right order, chapters one, two, three, and then four, five, and six, a believer will just bloom and blossom in his or her obedience because they know who they are in Christ, okay? So we have to keep them in that order. So return with me now to chapter 1, and let's see how Paul tries to help us with this, okay? Verses 3 to 14 that we studied over the last few weeks, Paul lays out this beautiful plan of redemption formed in the mind of God, carried out in the person of Jesus, and applied to every believer by the work of the Holy Spirit. And here are some of the things that he says in verses 3 to 14. He says, you have been chosen. You have been predestined for adoption. You've been redeemed. You've been forgiven. You've been marked for an inheritance. You've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. You've been promised a future possession in the awesome, glorious presence of God himself. Those verses that we took, what, three or four weeks to go through, carry some weighty things there are some deep deep things of God in verses 3 to 14 and I think that that is why when Paul finished those verses by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and got to verse 15 he said you know what I'm gonna have I'm gonna just have to pray for the people who get this that they can even understand this I'm going to have to pray for believers because these truths are so heavy and so weighty and so mind-boggling. I'm going to have to pray for all the people that get this letter. And so that's what he does. In verse 15, he launches into a prayer for us. And basically, he's praying that we'll understand it. He's praying that we'll get it. He knows that there is a lot there for our puny little brains to understand. And so he offers this prayer on our behalf that we would grasp the height, the width, the depth of who we are in Christ and what all we possess by being in him. We need this prayer. I need this prayer. You need this prayer too. And you'll notice as I read through that prayer... Uh, verses 15 to 23, the entire prayer is for spiritual things, not physical. Paul, de- he never uh, prays for Aunt Matilda's big toe in that prayer. It's not that those things are wrong, but Paul knows that we must grasp who we are in Christ before we begin doing all of the other practical things that we need to do. So Paul's interest is in making sure that Christians understand what they possess by being part of Jesus. So watch how he starts this, verse 15. He says, It's for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. Paul's writing this letter from prison, if you remember that, but he has been allowed to have visitors come and visit him in prison and as these visitors come in from all over the world, they're carrying messages back to him about the churches uh, that he's planted. And so in verse 15, he gives this reason why he bursts into this joyful prayer for them. What are the reasons he gives in verse 15? Why does he break into joyful prayer for them? Is it because he heard that the church in Ephesus is the largest church in the region? Is it because he hears that the church in Ephesus is the fastest growing church in the region? Is it because the Ephesus church has the biggest budget, the greatest community impact, the most number of programs and classes, because they have the coolest lights, because they have the best drummer in town, because they have the most wonderful flavors of coffee at their coffee bar. Is that why he gives thanks for them? Look what he says. I've heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all of the saints. You realize that those are the two marks of every authentic Christian. They have the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a vertical relationship and they have a love for all of the saints. There is a horizontal relationships relationship. True believers demonstrate faith and love. If you claim to be a believer and you claim to love Jesus, you must also love others. John, John gives us this blunt warning. I, I like it when you read John. John's a very black and white kind of writer. And in 1 John, John says this, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a what? He's a liar. He is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Friends, don't go tell people that you're a Christian and love Jesus and then turn around and spew hatred about another Christian. You just proved yourself to be a liar. Someone could say, there is no way you're a Christian. You can't be a Christian and not love other people, plain and simple. So Paul here is in, in prison. And he's hearing these guys back in Ephesus, they have faith in Jesus Christ and they love the saints. They, they love all of the other people that are in the church and it just in, enthuses him it just thrills his heart and so look what he says in verse 16 because of this i do not cease to give thanks for you i remember you in my prayers that the lord the god of our lord jesus christ the father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened i love that i love his prayer for them Notice he gives a little throwback to verses 3 to 14 when he calls God the Father of glory. You remember in those, the opening prayer, over and over and over again, Paul says, for the praise of his glory, for his glorious grace, our God the Father is a God of great glory. Your salvation, your standing in Christ, your redemption is utterly and totally for the glory of God. It's meant to make him look great. And of course, you get all kinds of blessings with it, no doubt. Um, but your life as a believer is to bring him glory. But all those blessings that you receive, those are hard to understand. It's hard to wrap your minds around. So notice Paul's prayer. God, my prayer for these believers is that you would give them a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of you. Now, if you have an ESV, an English Standard Version translation, that's what I'm reading from this morning, you'll notice that the word spirit in your Bible has a capital S, capital. If you have a King James Bible with you this morning, you'll notice that that word spirit has a small s there. I think the small s is the correct translation. and Here's why. When Paul says, God, I pray that you would give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation, I don't think he's asking God to give you the Holy Spirit. If you're a believer, you already have the Holy Spirit. I don't think it's a a second uh, blessing. I don't think it's a a, a second crisis of faith. If you've expressed faith in Jesus Christ, you have the, the Spirit. In fact, back in verse 13, he says, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So I think what he's saying there is he saying with a, a small S, I I pray that you would give these believers the, dis, the disposition, uh, the attitude of wisdom and revelation. And, and I think you and I can understand it because we use that little s spirit in our speech as well. If you're, if you're around somebody and they're having a, a pretty rough day, we, we say, man, his spirit's just low today. Okay, and we know what that means. Or if somebody's having a really great day, we say, oh, he has he's high in spirits today. Okay? Uh, we use that word spirit with a small s in the same. And what we mean by that is their attitude, their disposition is, is something either really low or something really high. And so what Paul is saying here is, God, I'm so thankful for what I hear about these believers. And I so desperately want them to understand their riches in Christ. I pray that you would give them a a disposition toward an attitude of wisdom and revelation so they would understand you more and more and more. That they would get you. That as God, you tell your truth to them that they would know you personally, intimately. That's the purpose of Paul's prayer that we would know God better. Here's what the world tells you. You need to know yourself better. Paul says, no, 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 you need to know God better. The world will come along and say, well, if you just know yourself better, if you just know what makes you happy, if you just know what makes you sad, then you can live life and you can be happier and you can be all these things. Paul says, that's not it at all. You need to know God better. And when you know God better and you know what pleases him, you will live a life that pleases him. The byproduct is you will be happier, but that's not the primary reason. We know him so that we can please him. And so Paul's prayer is, man, I pray God that these believers would know you well would know what you've done for them. And so he says, may the eyes of their hearts be enlightened. That little phrase, I think, probably needs some explanation in America. Um, Because in America, when we talk about the heart, uh, the heart in America is the center of emotion, right? Uh, When we want to talk about love, We want to talk about mushy kinds of feelings. Uh, We refer to the heart, right? The heart was not the center of emotion for Jews. In in a Hebrew way of thinking, do you know where a Hebrew, where a Jew felt emotion? He felt emotion in his gut. That's where the emotion felt. Literally, emotions were felt in the bowels. And that makes sense because if you are ever in a situation where you're really nervous about something, or you're really worried about something, your stomach will kind of churn, or it feels like you have butterflies. All right? so uh, in, in we in in our heart uh, or in our in our bowels, we we feel that emotion, uh, but that kind of feeling doesn't fit in America. Um, You don't find very many Valentine's cards that say, I love you with all my bowels. It just doesn't come out right. It it just doesn't send the right message, right? Uh, If if you've been around me very long, you know that one of my pet peeves is is when one of you posts something cute and cuddly on Facebook, and there's this little picture. And underneath the picture, there's this tagline that says, My heart is full. And if you were with me when I read your post, I literally scream at my screen, full of what? My heart is full. Full of what? Full of joy, full of happiness, full of disgust, full of jealousy. What is it full of? Biblically, if you're tagging that and you're talking about emotions, you need to be tagging that, my bowels are full. (laughs) See if that doesn't get you some comments. biblically the emotions happen in the bowels okay the heart was not the center of emotion so what is the heart the center of when paul says i pray that their hearts would be enlightened the heart in a jewish mind is the center of thinking it's the center of the intellect It's, it's the center of understanding Jesus makes that connection for us Uh, in the story where he healed the paralytic in Mark chapter 2. It says, immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they questioned within themselves, said to them, listen to the question, why do you question these things in your hearts, right? The questioning, the thinking, the confusion was happening in the center of their intellect, in their heart. It's expressed, state, uh, stated by Paul expressly in Second Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6 where Paul says, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown where? In our hearts to give the light of what? Knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The heart biblically in the new testament is always connected to knowledge okay so when paul here is saying my prayer god is that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened what he's saying for what he's saying there is i am praying not for their emotions but i am praying for their thinking i'm praying for their intellect i'm praying for their reasoning Why does Paul pray that? Because Paul knows that whatever you set your mind to, that's where your desires will go. And Paul says, if I can help them, and if you can help them, God, fix their minds on your glory, on Jesus Christ, then their affections, their desires will follow. And so Paul's prayer is just, Open their minds so that they can see your glory in their salvation so that they come after you. And so there's three things that Paul says. Here's my prayer that they would know. Three things. He says, the hope to which God called you, the riches of your inheritance, and the power of God. First, he says, my prayer, verse 18, is that they would know the hope to which God has called you. Now, we've said this before, but it's worth saying again that when the Bible talks about hope, it's not talking about the flimsy kind of hope that you and I often use a word. We say things like, I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow. I hope so-and-so is able to come visit. That's not how the Bible uses the word hope. In the New Testament, the word hope is used as a settled truth, a confidence in what's to come, as something that's done, as something that's finished. Okay, so in Romans chapter 5, Paul says, Through him we've obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God, in confidence in the glory of God. Romans 15 and verse 4 continues, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. We might have a firmness about ourselves a stability paul's already mentioned this in his letter back in ephesians 1 verse 12 he says so that we who were the first to hope in christ might be to the praise of his glory our hope friend is a grounded confidence of what Christ has accomplished on our behalf, and it is full, it is total, it is complete. When Jesus hung on the cross and said, it is finished, he meant it. It's finished. It's done. And every person who believes in that finished work of Jesus Christ, it is finished on their behalf. You don't have to work for your salvation. You don't have to earn your salvation. Instead, we understand Jesus when he said to his followers, come to me, Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. You guys are working, 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 trying to earn your way to God. Come to me. It's finished in me. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Friend, if you're here this morning and you are a Christian, you are a believer, stop thinking that somehow you can make God like you more because of your performance. God says, and Paul says instead, know the hope that you already have Know the confidence that you have. Your hope is not in yourself. Your hope is in the one who already accomplished it for you. Rest in that. Rest in that. Your eternity is settled in Jesus Christ, not because of your performance, but because of his. Now, you live your life out of response to that, of course. Now that you know that your life is lived obediently to the one who would do that for you. Don't live obediently to earn your grace. Live obediently as an act of worship for his grace. Paul knows that that's hard to grasp. And so he says, God, open the eyes of their heart. That they would know, they would know the hope to which you have called them. And what else does Paul want us to know? Into verse 18, he says, I want you to know the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints. Remember back earlier in this chapter, Paul says you were adopted as a son in the kingdom. Do you ever wonder why you're adopted as a son and not a daughter? Because only sons had inheritance in those days. So Paul says every man, woman, boy, and girl who comes to know Jesus Christ in a personal way, gets an inheritance as a son. You all get inherit. You equally come in. Every single one of you, and that is just awesome, right? That just sort of elevates us. You and I get a taste of that, that wonderful inheritance today, but there is a greater inheritance awaiting for us where moths don't eat it, where rust doesn't destroy it, the grand fullness of your inheritance has been planned for you. And Jesus right now at this moment is preparing a room for you. He's getting it ready for you. And he's saying, one day I'm going to come back, but right now I'm getting it all ready for you. I don't know about you, but when you stop and you think about this grand plan, it is simply mind-blowing. I don't know if you. I don't know if I totally get it. I I don't know if you totally get it. If I were to somehow try to visualize it, I think I would try to visualize it something like this. Way back here, somewhere in eternity past, before the foundation of the world, Paul says, "God set His affection on you. He loved you. He chose you. He adopted you as His son." Way back there in eternity past. Somewhere in history past, we can point at a date, Jesus came to the earth and carried out that plan that God put into motion. He died for you. He rose for you. He ascended for you. Somewhere along the line, you by faith believed in that Jesus Christ, right? And somewhere way out here in eternity future, there is awaiting for you the glorious inheritance of in all of its fullness, in all of its glory, in all of its magnificence. So from way back here in eternity past, all the way out there to eternity future, all of that was planned by God for you. You were never an afterthought in the mind of God. Now, that ought to totally revolutionize the way we think about today, right? If all of that is true, and that's what Paul's been trying to tell us this whole first chapter, that changes everything. If I see my life in that spectrum of eternity, it changes the way I handle suffering. It changes the way I do God's will. It changes my desire to serve. It it, it changes my Urgency in evangelism. Everything about my day-to-day living is totally and utterly changed in light of that grand plan. I don't know what you're facing today. Maybe this week has been a bombshell for you. Maybe it's just been one of the worst weeks of your life. Friend, from eternity past, God loved you. He sent his son to live for you. He loves you an eternity future, God loves you. I'm getting a room ready for you. I'm coming back for you. Somehow that helps us to say, okay, I can do this with God's help. I can can handle this with, with God's help he's done all of that for me, then what I'm facing here is small. I think this is why Paul, when Paul in 2 Corinthians 11 went through this litany of things he had experienced, I've been beaten, I've been shipwrecked, I've been stoned. That same torture that Paul experienced in 2 Corinthians 11, earlier in 2 Corinthians 4, he said, this is light and momentary. How in the world can you look at your life that's been beaten, struck down, and say, yeah, it's light and momentary? Because Paul saw things in terms of eternity. That's what he wants you to see. Do you understand? Do you see how that knowledge impacts you today? This is why Paul prays that we would grasp that, that we would get it. And when we understand that, it totally affects us. There's a third thing that Paul prays that we know. And we're just going to introduce this one today because actually verses 20 through 23 kind of flow out of this third one. And so we'll look at that the next time we're together. But in verse 19, he says, I also, God, pray that they would know what is the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe according to the working of your great might. Now, Paul, in that one verse, almost trips over himself as he lays out synonym after synonym to try to describe the power of God. It's almost like he can't come up with enough words to put together to describe the power of God in your life. So he takes four of them, at least in this one verse, and he says, here's what the power of God is like. The the first word he uses is translated power, in that verse 19, it's the Greek word dynamis. What English word does that sound like? Dynamite, right? The power of God is like dynamite. It has tremendous power. It's a a reference to God's inherent power. The second word that Paul uses in that one little verse is translated working in our English verse. It's the Greek word energia. What does that sound like? Energy, right? It's the operative power of God. It's it's the power of God that causes everything to function together right. He uses a third word in this particular uh, phrase. It's the word translated great in, in your verse. Usually when Paul writes that word, he uses the Greek word mega, which mega large. But in this time, he uses the word kratos, kratos it means God's sovereign power his power of dominion is, is a reference to the ultimate power of God and then finally Paul throws in one more word and it's the word translated mighty in our Bibles it's the word iscus which means a capability a force it was a word that used that was used to describe the force of a band of soldiers It was like an endowed power. Now, why does Paul pile word upon word upon word to somehow try to get us to understand the magnificent, awesome power of God? It's because of this. When you and I grasp the reality of the totality of the power of God in our lives, it gives us the confidence to do everything that God asks us to do. And it helps us to understand that God's power is yours too. Because it's the same power, he says, that rose Jesus from the dead. It raised him from the dead. That same power God used to raise you from the dead. It's the same power that's in you because it's the same power that's in Christ. And what Paul's going to tell us next time we're together is, friend, if you are a believer, you have unbelievable power at your disposal. The same power that God used on his son, Jesus Christ. That's why when you get to the end of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, Paul can say, Finally, be strong in the Lord. Well, how can I be strong in the Lord? Because you have the power of the Lord. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Why do I need all that power? Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the scheme of the devil. That's why Satan's coming after you. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against who? Rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over the present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Where do you think that power comes from, friend? Paul says, I want you to know the power you have because day in, day out, Satan is seeking whom he can devour and you're his target. You need the power, but you need to know that you have the power, that you can stand in the face of the schemes of the devil, so Paul says, "I want you to grasp that so you can live in obedience. I want you to grasp it so you can live in obedience to God." We'll come back to that power one next time we're together. There, there's more to be said about that one, so we'll, we'll come back and finish it up next time. Beginning to see as we start to scratch the surface of what all Paul wants us to understand about this God who saved you and what blessings you have as a result of that great salvation? Are you starting to scratch the surface and understand the vast riches that are yours in Christ Jesus? All the grace and mercy and riches and inheritance and power that are in your possession because of what God has done for you. It's life-altering. I think that's why Paul just stops a little bit and says, "Oh, okay, I'm gonna have to pray for these guys. I'm gonna have to pray for Sean. I'm gonna to pray for all these others, that they would know this, that they would get it. So I want us to, to stand together and I wanna pray that our eyes of our hearts would be enlightened, that we would understand what Paul has written for us, all right? Stand with me, if you would. God, we are not you. We are not God. And yet, you reveal yourself to us and you tell us that we have the mind of Christ that because of the Holy Spirit illuminating in our hearts, we can understand you, at least partially understand you. We we grow in that knowledge of you. Uh, One day when we meet you face to face, we'll have an increasing knowledge of you, but for all of eternity, you will continue to demonstrate and reveal yourself to us. God, it's hard for me to wrap my mind around the fact that from eternity past until eternity future, I was on your heart and mind. And I know this isn't about me. This isn't about us. We're not the, the central character in the Bible. You are. It's all meant to bring you glory. And yet somehow it gives me great joy and it gives me great confidence and it makes me so happy that you knew me and will know me for so, so long. I pray that this changes my life and it changes the lives of people that are here that we don't walk around in fear wondering if somehow we've done enough for you we can't do enough you knew that that's why you sent jesus and jesus and jesus alone could do enough and when we put our faith in him you accept us and you love us fully totally completely father i pray that we would quit the the mental Uh, roller coaster games where we try to somehow think that we can make you more happy or at least less angry with us and i pray that you would see you would help us to see ourselves the way you see us and that that wouldn't lead us to disobedient lives or lives of apathy but in fact it would lead us to want to always live for you to always be pleasing to you that you would do so many incredible things for us what can we do but offer our lives back and stand in worship We sang a song, I stand in awe of you. I stand and I give my life totally back to you. Father, I pray that in some small way, we begin to grasp this, we begin to live this, and it revolutionizes our lives. I love you. I thank you for your great gift. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.